Mighty God and everlasting Father, we thank you that you have spoken, that you have given us, we who are fallen, your word, that we might, O Lord, know your will, that we might follow your precepts, your laws, your statutes, and your commandments, that we might not move to the right or to the left, that we may be righteous before you, O God. We pray that you would aid in the ministry of the word this morning, in the preaching and hearing of it, that we may be moved to understand the fall of man, the temptation narrative, O God, and what it was that caused them to be rebellious against you. We ask, O God, that you administer these words to our heart and help us honor you. Let us come closer to you as a result. We pray for your help in these things and ask that your spirit would be with us, moving amongst us. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We look to Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, You shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. The temptation here in dealing with Genesis 3, it leads to being disobedient. It answers in this narrative how sin was allowed into the human race. God did not create men in sin, but sin entered the garden through deception. As it's read, one must keep in mind that the central axiom on which the entire narrative revolves is the word of God. That is the key to the entire passage. How would the nation of God's people receive the word of the Lord? This is what Moses is thinking about. What lessons could they take away from this narrative as it applies to the law that they received? God's law. How would integrity turn into guilt. The narrative itself answers or demonstrates to us why the Lord Jesus Christ had to come, had to die, had to be resurrected, ascended, and is presently interceding. It describes the fall of man. It demonstrates to us why sin is in the world. It demonstrates the disobedience that our first parents had as a result of partaking of the forbidden fruit. 
Now the text says the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. The serpent was a snake. And the serpent was used by Satan. It was a serpent possessed of the devil. God allowed Satan to speak through a snake because snakes don't talk. Balaam's donkey was allowed to speak in Numbers 22 by the power of the angel. But serpents don't talk. Animals don't regularly talk. And the serpent was more crafty or cunning than any beast of the field. And Satan chose the serpent because of the qualities it possessed. It was cunning in its manner and disposition. And so the serpent spoke to the woman. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? Note that Moses in writing this was not concerned about the origin of evil. And he was not concerned about the nature of the snake. It's primarily concerned with what the snake said. The record we have is not something given to men before the fall, but in spite of the fall. That's why we have Genesis. Adam did not have the book of Genesis. The writings of Moses in giving it to us is a result of the fall. Pre-fallen man had all of the knowledge of the things that we often ask in mystery today. Where did evil come from? How did these things happen? Adam had all knowledge in walking in perfect communion with God. But Moses is writing, not because he wants to tell us where the origin of evil came from, and not because he wanted to tell us about the nature of the serpent and the strangeness about that particular narrative. He doesn't go into any of that. He wants us, and is precise about what it wants fallen human beings to know. The serpent did not know exactly what God had said to Adam and Eve concerning the trees of the garden. The serpent asks a question. Has God indeed said this? The nature of the Hebrew is unclear in terms of the serpent's question. I'm not exactly sure what God has asked you or told you or said to you. Is this what he said? And the serpent uses the term God not the covenanted term Yahweh. Yahweh is used only with those whom God is covenantally bound to. The serpent simply says, God. Has God indeed said? When previous, Moses has written about the Lord God, Yahweh, Elohim. <coughs> the question raised was not necessarily an easy one to answer. It did give Eve the ability to justify the commandment and to defend God. But that's not what she did. That's what Adam was supposed to do. But that's not what he did. He asks about every tree of the garden. And that's a bit unclear. The serpent may have meant all of the trees or any particular trees, but he wasn't sure. The garden was the protective area which God made. The very word garden means shield from danger or hedge of protection. And so the integrity of the human was the target of the serpent's question and the serpent's attack. So Eve replies. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the true but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, what did he say? This is what she said. He said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Now, 
it's not, it seems strange that Eve didn't run away or jump when the serpent began to speak. Even though this may be somewhat speculative, she probably stayed there because a talking snake is interesting. It's not obviously a common occurrence. But she answers the serpent. She begins speaking with the serpent. And she restates the command of God. Her words are not the same as Genesis 2.17. She does two things to God's word. She adds to God's word by saying, nor shall you touch it. God never said that. And she quickly turned the command into probability. Maybe we will die, which is the word lest. She weakened. She added. She did not retain the original command. Adam, who was standing there with her, remained silent. Unless, of course, Adam had instructed her incorrectly. In God's command, God had stated, In the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And it's a double repetition. Dying, you shall die. God had not said that they could not touch the tree. Eve, at that particular note, became a Pharisee. They added something extra to it. There was nothing in his command to prevent them from cutting it down, making a house of wood about it, examining the chemical composition of the leaves, or using the flowers for decoration. They were merely told not to eat its fruit. God did not remove from it scientific study or any kind of industrial use at all. Eve's simple addition brought the whole meaning and scope of their dominion before God into question. They were to be sovereign over creation, not subjected to creation. Even before taking the fruit, Eve had already began to shift her reference point from God's interpretation to her own. She sinned even before Adam bit the fruit. Now the tempter then denies in verse 4, what God says. Then the serpent said to the woman, You shall not surely die. When the serpent saw that the woman had not retained a precise knowledge of God's word, he denied the penalty of death. You shall not surely die. Interesting enough, the serpent was being more precise in reiterating the command than Eve had been precise. Yet, even in doing that, as Christ said in John 8:44, when he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources, for he is a liar and the father of it. The tempter's explanation comes out of God's motive in verse 5. For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent raised doubts about the integrity of God in order to justify the disobedience. God is holding you back. And to become divine like him, you need to take and eat. Is this not a curious way to achieve divinity like God, to disobey his command? The serpent relates God's character with man's character. You will be like him, and he will be like you. See, Eve God is as flexible as you are thinking about all of this. 
Yes, the goodness of God must be obeyed, his justice must be obeyed, his holiness must be obeyed. But man, at the suggestion of Satan, would himself be as good, as just, as holy as God is. Man would set up his own goodness against God's goodness. He would sit in judgment of the command and he would become more perfect and pure than God moving into the realm where God knows good and evil. Duty then becomes a byword. And so, suddenly, there is an appeal that's made to her senses and her passions. So when the woman saw, she saw, that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, what did she do? She took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. The food was good for food, beautiful, and held the potential for wisdom. Three things. Interesting that it somewhat reflects 1 John 2.16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not of the Father, but of the world. The appeal of the fruit to be divine, to be like God, was now the occasion of the sin instead of the barrier of the sin. The words pleasant and desirable are cognates of the Tenth Commandment to covet. She took, she ate, she gave, and he ate also. Very quickly. The narrative was descriptive, but now it moves very quickly. And Adam ate without being deceived and simply went along with it. Willful conformity to sin. That is why in 1 Timothy 2.14 it says, And Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Adam willfully ran to sin. And then the covenant was broken. In verse 7, And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Their eyes were opened. They saw more. One theologian says, They saw more. But what they now saw, they spoiled by seeing. They were naked, which now is shameful as a result of sin, and they attempted to hide their shame by covering it with some leaves. Certainly, on that note alone, the futility of their minds was being demonstrated. Leaves would hide them. God would not know they could fix what they broke with leaves. Calvin says that they may keep God at a distance as by an invincible barrier. Somehow they thought that these leaves were going to fix it. All of this pointed them to a demonstration of their depravity now before God. They now had darkened minds. How dark would a mind have to be in order to believe that withering fig leaves ripped from a branch would somehow alleviate the consequence of their sin before God. That is, in and of itself, insane. So they were deceived. Quickly they fell in to their sin as a result of their passion and the serpent deceived Eve, who gave to his husband, who gave to her husband, and he ate. Out of this particular text, I want to focus in on 
I think, a main doctrine of the text surrounding the axiom, the word of God. People, or angels, or devils, for that matter, must never, at any time, change the word of God. Eve changed God's word. She turned God's word into her own words. What is going on here is a debate over who said what and why. The serpent said, the woman said, God said. If God was there, there would have been no doubt as to what he said. The word would have stayed the standard, the objective standard. But Eve turned the objective word into her own personal subjective idea. We have to always remember that the truth of God is independent of the observer. Truth is objective in this way. As a result, we must never, at any point, for any reason, change the word of God. The devil is opposed to the word of God. He's out to change it. In probing Eve and placing doubt upon her, he cunningly deceived her. He found out what the command was, or at least what Eve thought the command was, and he deceived her by adding disbelief and distrust in her mind. When you question what people think, they pause. Are you sure that that is what Romans 1.8 means? And then someone says, well, I'm pretty sure, yes. You place doubt. The devil doesn't want God's people to get the word of God right because then they know what God really says. And what an awful thing it is for the devil to have Christian men and women know the word of God. For then they are equipped to fight and to be sanctified and to please God. Christ in the wilderness, when he fought the devil, reclaiming the garden incident, used, it is written, over and over. He fought the devil with the word of God. In the garden, it was an attack on the character of God. In the wilderness with Christ, it was an attack on the character of God. God's trustworthiness is not on the line when you deal with the word of God and its trustworthiness to be believed. If his word cannot be believed, then God cannot be believed. God is always right about his word. Eve should have trusted God's word more than she did. Just that word, lest, proves otherwise. Lest you die. God sets the standard for truth. Satan doesn't. Eve nor anyone else can change the standard. But people certainly can twist the standard incorrectly. If Eve was in doubt, she should have turned to Adam and asked him for help. And if Adam was in doubt, he should have spoken up and called Eve aside to discuss his thoughts with her. And they both should have called out to God. God would have reinforced that standard immediately. Christians should always uphold the word against the devices of their own heart. Adam and Eve were perfect and still managed to mangle the word of God. Christians are fallen sinners. How much more careful must Christians be in upholding the word? God looks upon men in a certain way. He looks upon his people, a certain kind of people. Isaiah 66, 2. But on this one I will look, God says, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit, and who trembles at my word. They hold the word in high regard. No Christian 
has an adequate understanding of the word, the heart of the Christian should trust the word and tremble at his word, for contained within his word are descriptions of God. God's word is that which casts knowledge upon everyone's eternal state and their communion with him. Whether men shall reside in heaven and hell, whether they may enter heaven, whether they may be saved, if Christians were really concerned with the gravity of not misrepresenting God's word, we should hear them say daily, what shall I tremble at in the word of God when I sit to read today? It tells us how to live godly lives and reminds us often that what is contained in it, it should never be neglected. It tells us that we don't live godly lives as we should. No wonder people neglect reading it because they don't like what it says to them. Jeremiah Burroughs is very right when he says, this is to be understood. That when I come to hear or read the word, I come to hear or read that which has so much quickness in that. Every sermon I hear, I must expect to be nearer to heaven or nearer to hell. Although it's not necessarily present here in Genesis 3, as it is in other areas, let it also be known that the devil himself trembles at God's word. The devils believe and tremble, James 2.19 says. Proverbs 1.7 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. And in that way, knowledge produces fear, and wisdom is the proper application of knowledge, and fear is the beginning of wisdom, and so this is the one whom God looks at, the one who trembles before his word. If Christians want to be wise, they must know things about God. Write things that are designated to be known rightly in his word, never twisted, never changed, never added to, never taken away from. And so we turn to application of this for us. God never gives us the right to be wrong about his word. We are never to change God's word. In essence, the word will never change, but it will cease to be God's word when someone adds to it or takes away something from it. A half-truth is a whole lie. When we change something in God's word, we change the word from being the truth and the standard to being a lie, because it's not what God said. The serpent was trying to discover God's truth in order that he may twist it, that he may change it, and he wanted to know the truth. Today, he knows the word better than you and I do. And he is out to confuse us and to twist it and to change it and to influence us for the worse. R.K. McGregor, right in a little book called No Place for Sovereignty, says, Adding to God's word implies they are not sufficiently clear as they stand. And removing some of them implies that our minds are capable of deciding that God may possibly be wrong about some details. That's what happens when we change God's word. Would we want to say that to God? Is the word sufficient for us? Is God possibly wrong about some details in it? Could you imagine someone saying that God, when they stand before him on judgment day, I believed this this way and not the way that it was stated because I didn't believe that it was right. God would send him to hell 
John 8.32 says, And the truth shall set you free. Jesus doesn't say part of the truth or some of the truth, but the truth. God never gives us the right to be wrong about his word. His word and his name are so inexplicably linked that they cannot be separated or used in an ill fashion without bringing harm to both of them. Misquoting the scriptures, changing the scriptures, irreverency of the word. All of those things are using God's name in vain. Jesus said that we are to be sanctified by the truth because God's word is truth. That is the way that it is to be handled in truth. When we change the word, we sin before God, and we sin in the eyes of his son, Jesus Christ. It is a sin to change the word by adding to it or taking away from it. The scriptures resound with this. Deuteronomy 4.2 You shall not add to the word which I commanded you, nor take from it, that you may keep the commandments of the Lord your God which I commanded you. You can't keep God's commandments if you change them. Proverbs 30, 5 and 6. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield for those who put their trust in him. Do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you, and you found to be a liar. The word is pure. We are to keep it pure in our mind, in our heart, in our actions. Revelation 22, 18 and 19. For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God shall take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. Adam and Eve were expelled from the garden for changing God's word, giving into temptation and partaking of the forbidden fruit. Adam's iniquity and running headlong into sin so disregarded the barrier and duty of the word that it plunged the entire human race into misery. Misery is continually compounded by everyone who disregards the truth of the word. We must not add anything to it. We must not take anything away from it. So much of what divides the church today would fall by the wayside if people simply did their homework. The divisions demonstrate an incorrect handling of the word. We need to stop being so lazy about God's word and take time that it deserves to be understood correctly. How do we keep from changing the word? In a word, study. 2 Timothy 2.15 And this is more than simply reading and having daily devotions out of someone else's work, but we are supposed to rightly divide the word of truth. That is why it's so popular today to use other people's books in class or read other sermons or follow someone else's outlines or listen. In Peru, when we went on mission trips, the pastors got their sermons from listening to the radio. Listening to the charismatic preachers on the radio. They would take that and just preach it in their church. No study. They didn't know how to study. Oftentimes, a desire to prove yourself right is what spawns a study of Scripture, a serious study. When was the last time you studied the Bible? Not just to find out 
if what you thought was true, to find a proof text for something, but rather to work through, say, the book of Proverbs in a study, or the book of Galatians in a study. When was the last time that you did that? I don't want to discount the need for being forced by God into a study on a particular subject, and as Christians, we should be so wrapped up in study in certain things, but how is it that this is not a common thing among Christians to study through the book of Galatians, to study through the book of Romans, to do some serious work in trying to understand the word of God? When we come to the scripture, we want to find those things which agree with us. We oftentimes go into the word with presuppositions about it. But what is a presupposition? We need to stop having them. These are things that we think are true without actually studying, finding out whether they are. Oftentimes it's the I've always learned it this way problem, or I was brought up this way dilemma. Just because it's been taught to you doesn't make it true. You must be able to prove it from the word with more than just a simple reading of the word. Couldn't Adam have stepped into a... uh, In between the serpent and Eve, couldn't he have stepped in and corrected his wife's poor theology? Could have done that, but he didn't do it. When we change the word, we are actually in contempt of Christ himself, because Jesus Christ is the word. John 1.1, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the living, breathing word of God. And when we change the word, We change our conception of who God is. The whole of our Christian life is to get to know the Savior, Jesus. And through his mediation, know the Father and the Spirit. How can we know him unless we know what his word says? And what if you change the word? Then you're not truly believing the true Christ. You've made up a new one and a new Jesus. Where... The old one is gone. Whether it's on purpose because you don't like what the word says or on accident because you haven't studied the word to know what it really says. Hopefully you see the danger there. If you're wrong about the word, if you're wrong about who Christ is, then you believe in a Jesus that doesn't exist. And you believe in a different God. Take the word for what it says, not ever what you think it says. Go With the word. Study the word. The new command Eve made up was just that, a brand new command. God didn't say that. And it's not what God meant. It's not what God said. She was wrong. What she said was not what God said. In any way, in any shape, or in any form. It was a new command. The new Jesus that is often made up is just that, a a new Jesus who is no Jesus at all. It's a created lie. And God, again, never gives us the right to be wrong about the Word because the Word is His Son and He wants us to know His Son in spirit and in truth. All of this stems from their main sin in the garden. The sin of self-love. The great sin of pride. The fall and of men, of all men, all temptation. It is pride that dissuades us from upholding the integrity of the word of God. Self-love is at the heart of all sins. Listen to what God said to the Israelites in Hosea 5.5. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Therefore Israel and Ephraim stumble in their iniquity. 
Judah also stumbles with them. The pride of Israel testifies. It is the great duty of all believers not to enter temptation. God is able to deliver the godly out of temptation, Second Peter says. Yet, it is our great task to use all diligence so that we don't fall into temptation. Christ expresses his concern for us by teaching us to even pray in that way. Lead us not into temptation, Matthew 6.13. Deliver us, actually, from the evil one. Since our Lord knows the power of temptation, having experienced it, he knows how vulnerable we are to it. He rewards our obedience by keeping us in the hour of temptation, as Revelation 3.10 says. But this will only occur if we overcome the sin of self-love. Self-love is man's love to his own good. This is what Adam and Eve did. Moses writes Genesis in need of explaining what the Israelites need to know to make it from the wilderness into the promised land. How will they react to getting this law and what will they do with the law when they get it? It is found that on page after page, the Israelites never seem to learn how to reject the wicked pride in desiring what they want over following the commands of what God wants. They mimic the garden over and over and we do as well. Self-love replaces love to God's word and to God's will. Pride, selfish desires, pride coupled in ignorance yields self-deceit. We nod at Eve's sin and we say, yes, she sinned because of her self-love, her twisting of the word and her sinful desires to rely on her own imaginations instead of relying on the truth of God. And at the same time that we nod at her self-love and her pride, which brought the fall through Adam's wickedness, we are not as aware of the word of God as we should be as well. Define justification. Define justification through faith in Christ, without which no one can be saved. Can you describe even simply the doctrine of the Trinity, without which no one can be saved? What do you know about the Jesus of the Bible? There are many false Christs out there in the modern church today. They offer everything under the sun, at the expense of salvation. Can you speak intelligibly about the work of the Holy Spirit, the author of your regenerated heart? How are you any different than Eve? How are we any more ready to fight the serpent in our day than Eve was in hers? We know God by his word and by trusting his word. How can we worship a God that we don't know? How can we pray to a God that we don't know? How can we love a God that we don't know? How can we do anything like these things unless we know the word of God as God gave it to us? We look to Eve and we nod and we say, yes, she sinned. She fell into temptation, pride and deceit. And Adam quickly conformed running willfully into sin, and it's so bad. And yet, we do much and many of the same things, and even worse, because we have fallen hearts. May we look to Christ, may we look to his aid through the power of the Holy Spirit to know God's word in such a way that we would never twist it or turn it, but that we would know God through it. Let's pray together.
Mighty Lord and Everlasting One, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the writings that Moses wrote, that you carried him along, that he might write the inspired scriptures, that we may read and see that twisting your word brings dire consequences. It brings his death. We have been plummeted into the misery of the fall, a result of Adam's sin. And yet we look upon the narrative and we see that in the same way, a perfect, unspoiled human being desire to follow you in deceit and self-love. Even we who are fallen, O Lord, are so prone to the disposition. The serpent has a field day. We ask, O God, that you would not lead us into temptation and that you would deliver us from the evil one. And we so pray that you would help us to see how important it is to study and know your word aright that we might know you more intimately and truthful as we rely on the objective word of God. We so ask that you would hear us and answer us quickly in these things. In Jesus' name, amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important. When he says that God had commanded no such thing, and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said, 
that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.